as we walk through our Hebrew series, we have come to the point in Hebrews 11.32 where it gives us another name. That name is Jephthah. I really wish the writer of Hebrews 11 would have stopped and put a comma and explained more of why he included Jephthah in there, but he didn't. So we're going to dive into the Old Testament passage looking at Judges chapter 11. So open your Bibles, click on your app, whatever you're doing, get to Judges chapter 11. We're going to look at the entire chapter of Judges chapter 11 this morning, and we're going to walk through a controversial, interesting, difficult to interpret passage where Jephthah leads the charge as a judge. He has a great victory. He makes a tragic vow in the process, and people start wondering, what does he do to his daughter at the end of this chapter? Does he kill her and sacrifice her as a burnt offering? Does he dedicate her, consecrate her to the tabernacle to serve as a virgin for the rest of her life? And so we're going to answer that question or try to, to the best of my ability. But we've got some other main points in the text that we're going to look at in Judges chapter 11. So before I read that, let's set this up. Judges chapter 10, just before it, this is before Samson has occurred. So as we go through this downward spiral in the book of Judges, when you get to Samson, he's the last judge, and then you see the book concluding with that downward spiral of saying those words, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So we've jumped back one, and we're right before Samson, and we're at Jephthah, and in chapter 10, you get a couple of names. You get in chapter 10, verse 6, that the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this time it's worse. It says they served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So not only did they sin, not only did they rebel, but they began to serve all these other gods rather than the one true God who had brought them out of Egypt. And what God had told them would happen if you don't rid the land of all the people is come to pass and they were serving all of these other gods. Now, there's a lesson for us there too. In our own life, when we think I can make peace with my sin or I cannot get rid of temptations in my life or I cannot rid my, my own personal life of certain things, those temptations come back around in our Christian life. And even though we have been bought with a price and taken out of our spiritual Egypt, and even though we are headed for the promised land, if we make peace with those things that are around us, we will find ourselves in desperate situations serving other gods. It's a bad time. Verse 7 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. For 18 years, they oppressed the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. Verse 9 tells us the Ammonites crossed the Jordan. They went against them. They were distressed. And then we see it in verse 10 where it says, they have sinned against you, God, because we have forsaken our God and have served the bells. And how often is it that God has to get our attention too by something that happens in our life that causes us to thank God, you know what? I've sinned against you. I've allowed these other things to creep in and take first place in my life, and you're no longer first place in my life, and that's why my life's all messed up. And they cry out to God, and they say, God, we've sinned against you. But look at what God says to them. God says to them in verse 14, after a scolding, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. Well, how would you like to hear those words? Go cry out to your materialism and let it save you. Go cry out to your lust and let it save you. Go cry out to your gossip and let it save you. Go cry out to that reputation that you put ahead of everything else and let it save you. Scary words indeed. And they respond back in verse 15 and they say, we have sinned. 
Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. They served the Lord. And then it says, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. We come to chapter 11. We're going to see a description of a mighty warrior from the wrong side of the tracks. And if you are able to stand, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word as I begin reading to you in chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. He was son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, and they said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled, fled from his brothers, and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Dear Lord, as we look at this passage today, I pray that you would just help us to apply it to our lives, help us to learn and be drawn closer to you. And Lord, may Jesus be lifted up and exalted. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. And you may be seated. What we see right here from the start is we see that like Jair in chapter 10, verse 3, Jephthah is from a place known as Gilead, but his father's also Gilead, and so he was truly and doubly a Gileadite, and he was a mighty warrior, but he had a problem. He was the son of a prostitute, and so here we see it right in verse 1 that he was the son of a prostitute, and not only was he the son of a prostitute, but we also see in the text that we just read that when his brothers grew up, they drove him out. Now imagine if in your life you were the son or the daughter of a prostitute and your own family, your own brothers, your own sisters decided we don't have anything to do with you, we're going to reject you, you're going to get out, you're not getting any of the inheritance of our family, we want nothing to do with you. So you're born in a situation that's not the most ideal, you have been rejected by your own family, you have lost your inheritance, and as you have fled, there is no doubt that at some point in that time of fleeing that you have been homeless and you have been a refugee going into a foreign land of Tob, and then it is characterized and said of him that worthless fellows, earlier in chapter 9, worthless fellows has been translated as mercenaries, people who were not God-fearing, God-honoring, upstanding citizens, worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we start off our discussion today with a guy who was born to a prostitute, with a guy who had been rejected by all of his brothers, with a guy who had no inheritance, his own family turned his back on him, with a guy that had probably been homeless, had been a refugee of some sort, and had gone to a foreign land, and he was hanging out with the absolute worst crowd. So let me remind you that in the book of Judges, there's a downward spiral that doesn't necessarily show us what we ought to do, but it points us to the need for the perfect Savior of Christ who is coming. And so this morning, I'm not telling you, you need to go emulate this particular individual. But this is our hero of our story. Jephthah is the judge that we're looking at. Isn't it odd how God works? It's also in this text, it never says that God raised up Jephthah. It talks about other judges you could see in the book of Judges in 3.9, 3.11, 3.12, 3.13, 3.14, 3.16, 3.17, 3.18, 3.19, 3.20, 3.21, 3.22, 3.23, 3.24, 3.25, 
3.15, that God raised up different people and God had raised up Gideon before Jephthah, but God never says that he raised up this individual. In fact, it's the others that gather around and they go to, to seek him and they put him in charge. And so we have an individual here who had every reason to reject going into service. We have an individual here who had every reason to reject God, to reject the people, to say, absolutely not. I will not serve. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to turn my back on all of it and walk away from it. And yet what we're going to see as we get into this text is that he serves. Now, let me put a comma right there and make an application to some of you. There are some of you that look at our church in today's society and you say it's broken. I'm sick of it. I don't like the materialism I see in church. I don't like the fact that when I walk in church, I feel like people are playing politics or people have these attitudes. I don't like the hypocrisy I see in church. I'm done with it. Do you know what they did to me? And what I want to say to you is in this text, we see a guy who had been treated worse than any of us likely have been treated. And he steps up and gets in the game. And I want to say to you that God may be calling some of you that are looking around saying, I don't know if I want to be involved in that. You may be the person God wants to use to bring changes and to make a difference. And so even if you see things that are wrong, even if you see things that you don't like, even if you have been mistreated, even if something bad has happened to you, your past does not matter in God's economy. God can use anybody. God can use any person in this room or outside the walls of this room to do what God has called them to do. God is not a respecter of persons. He does not look on the outside appearance as man does. He looks on the inward appearance and on the heart. And so here we see God using an unlikely figure. He's a mighty warrior from the wrong side of the tracks. I had friends on the wrong side of the tracks growing up. I had a friend on the wrong side of the tracks that I would go to his house and I would play at that time. It was RBI baseball on Sega Genesis and the government projects. He'd come to my house We'd play other games, but usually it was a sports video game or basketball or football or something outside. When I brought my friend from the wrong side of the tracks into a 95% white church, I didn't like that a whole lot because he wasn't. Fortunately for me, my dad was the pastor, so it didn't really matter what they thought. We live in a day and we live in a time where folks, we gotta get over the fact that somebody may be from the wrong side of the tracks because every person on this earth is created in the image of God and God loves them just as much as he loves any one of us in this room and we should minister to every single individual and that means we gotta minister to the rich and we have to minister to the poor. We have to minister to those on the wrong side of the tracks and those on the right side of the tracks because every individual on this planet needs the gospel and it's our calling to minister to them and to love them. Jephthah. Verse four, it tells us, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And so what do they do? What happens when you're looking for somebody? And when the Ammonites made war, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah. Isn't this the turn of events? The person they kicked out, the person they got rid of, the person from the prostitute, the person with no inheritance, they go to Jephthah, bring him from the land of Tob. And when they said to Jephthah, come be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah says, to the elders of Gilead. Can you imagine this? Do you not hate me? Did you not drive me out of my father's house? Can you imagine? He probably had a little smirk on his face at some point as he was enjoying this just a little bit. Why have you now come to me when you are in distress? 
the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah in verse 9 says to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him the head and the leader over them. And Jephthah, it says, spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. He got in the game. I can't think of the right movie. I can't think of the right TV show. But in my mind, different characters from all across the shows I've watched throughout history began to flash to mind when I imagine the image that would have taken place when they went to go get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And I think of the Patriot and Mel Gibson as he played that leading Patriot star. And as he was a guy who had somewhat of a shady background and past, and all of a sudden they're calling him in. But see, he was far too good by the time they called him into service. You just get glimpses of how bad he might have been in his past. I think of some of the TV shows like the show Revolution or something where the hero had a shady past and, and had a, they called him and they tried to bring him in and he tried to be a man of character as he, as he came in. This is the type of scene. This is that archetype that we're seeing here of a guy who's hanging out with a bunch of worthless fellows. He's probably not in the temple praying when they go find him. And the reason they go find him is because he's pretty good at doing raids and killing a bunch of people. And so he's a mighty warrior. And they go find this guy and they say, hey, we need you. I can imagine him kicked back in his chair with his boots propped up and a sword or something by his side as he looks at him and says, why are you coming to me? You kicked me out. Now you're coming back to me. Why should I just not take your head off right now? I can imagine a great scene as that arises. But you see what he does here. He says, yeah, I'll come back and help you. I'll come back and lead. I'll get in the game. And so he steps up in verse 11 and says he'll come back. And then what we see is a man of words and a man of war. Look with me here in verse 12. Verse 12, after he's back, what's the first thing Jephthah does? Does Jephthah pull out his sword and go in and start whacking people and killing people? Does he pull out all of his army and go in and immediately start to attack? It says to us in verse 12 that Jephthah then sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, he asked a question, he wanted to clarify, and so he first sought peace. As he sought peace, he sent the messengers, he asked the question, what do you have against me? That you have come to me to fight against the land. Now notice there immediately. Just because he had been the son of a prostitute, just because he had been pushed off to the side, when he was given a position of leadership, he responds as though he belongs in that position and he belongs in that place of leadership. He doesn't, he doesn't back down at all. He says, you're coming after me now because I'm the leader and I'm going to take responsibility for what's happening here. And he says, what do you have against me that you come to me and to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites then answers him. He sends messengers of Jephthah, and it says, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. So the king of the Ammonites responds back to this inquiry and question that was sent. He said, give me your land. If you don't give me your land, I'm going to take the land, is basically what he's saying. So how do you respond back to a premise that's given like that? 
Well, there is, after this accusation, a response that occurs, and after the response, diplomacy is exhausted, and there's a war that takes place. But here you see the outline up on the screen for you. There's an inquiry, and then after the inquiry, there's an accusation, and after the accusation, there's a response, and then there's diplomacy. Notice first, though, he tried peace before he went to war. Now, there's a good lesson for us, too, there. Somebody's got something against us, whether it's a group of people, whether it's some friend, whether it's somebody that we don't know, and how do we respond? Do we immediately go and say, as guys, okay, let's duke it out, or whatever the case may be? You can respond, and you can ask the question simply, what is it you have against me? You notice he went directly to, he didn't go start a bunch of rumors talking about a bunch of people. He didn't go on Twitter or Facebook or the blogs or anywhere like that and start slandering everybody. He went directly to the person and asked a question, what is it that you have against me? The accusation came back. Now let's look at the response. And in the response, he lays out a fairly good essay or speech. Look at what he does here. We're going to walk through it, but look at what he does in the outline. He gives a thesis. After he gives a thesis, he gives a historical argument and a theological argument and appeals to precedent. And then he comes back around and he summarizes his thesis. Now, if you're writing a paper You're told that every paper should have a good thesis and it should have supporting arguments and then it should have a summary at the end that goes back and wraps up the paper. If you're in a debate or if you're giving a speech, you should have a thesis, you should have supporting content for it, you should summarize it there at the end. And here in Scripture, we have an excellent example of why Cedarville is a liberal arts institution. Now, this is a little bit of a stretch, but bear me out and hear me, all right? He was not just a warrior. He could analyze well, he could think well, and he could respond well. One of the reasons that we do liberal arts here is because we want you to be equipped to analyze well, to think well, to communicate well, to write well, to respond well to whatever comes about. And here you get a great example of what some of your English professors may use or what some of your speech coaches may want to use as you talk to others that you've got a thesis, you've got supporting evidence, you've got a conclusion, and it all makes sense and it wraps up in a nice little bow. And let's look at what he says now. Academic lesson aside, let's look at the text here. Jephthah sent the messengers, Jephthah gets the the answer, and then Jephthah responds, and look at what he does in verse 15. He says to him, thus says Jephthah, here's his thesis, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. Got his thesis. How's he going to support that? He goes to history first. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness and the Red Sea, and they came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. You see, they're peaceable people. You see how he's constructing his argument here? We're not taking your land. We're peaceable people. Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So what did Israel do? We remained at Kadesh. Israel, peaceful people. You see his argument he's making here. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab for Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Again, peaceful people. Look at your history here. We didn't do what you said we did. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. We're nice, peaceful people. But Sihon didn't trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Oh, and the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So then Israel took possession of all of the land of the Amorites 
who inhabited that country. Again, we're peaceful people. We went around and then we sent a a message and we even said, please, we were nice and kind about it. And he came and brought war to us. And when he brought war to us, we took care of the problem and, and God gave us the victory. And so that's how we took the land. You see the history that has taken place here? And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. Argument one. You're wrong. We didn't do what you said we did. Here's your history. History confirms it. We're peaceable people. Not only are we peaceable people, but he emphasized that the fight was with the Amorites, not the Ammonites. And so we didn't fight against you anyway. We fought against somebody else. When they attacked us, we were defending ourselves. That's what happened. So then he moves to a theological argument. Verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, Israel. And are you to take possession of them? In verse 24, he switches gears here. He says, will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives to you to possess? Now, here's a slight question as to why he used Chemosh, and we don't know, because Melech would have been the God of the Ammonites. Chemosh was the God of others, but maybe it was because of the syncretism and everybody serving everybody's God. Maybe Chemosh was the, the top God, or maybe he was the God of this particular king. We don't know why, but he indicates back to him, will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. There's a theological argument there too. God gives it in this day and time. They would have said that the gods give the land. And so our God gave us this land. And so now, are you going to push us out of it? And then he moves in verse 25. In verse 25, he goes to precedent and he says, Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? He never contended against us, did he? Or did he ever go to war with them? Balak from Moab didn't say we took his land. Why are you saying now that we took your land? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aurora and in its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not come up with a claim in that time? For 300 years, all this has taken place and you never had an issue. And so here he goes back to the precedent of Moab didn't come against it. 300 years, you haven't come against it. Now, therefore, why are you going to do it now? Summary. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. That's a pretty good argument, don't you think? He's got a thesis. He's got history to say we were peaceable people and we didn't have a fight with you. We had a fight with the Amorites, not the Ammonites. He comes back to theology and said, God gave it to us. You take what your God gives us. We took what our God gives us. Who are you now to come try to take it from us? And then he goes to the precedent and says, Balak didn't come after it. In 300 years, you haven't come after it. So now here's the conclusion of the matter. You're in the wrong. I'm in the right. You don't get our property. Sound. Sometimes, though, we present sound arguments and people don't listen. Here in verse 28, But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So then what happens? Diplomacy is exhausted. The response has been given. He sought peace first. And now it comes down to verse 29. And the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And that spirit of the Lord we've noticed several times. And I've just skipped across it. And I haven't focused in on it a couple of different times. But what you're seeing here when he says the spirit of the Lord came upon someone is a difference in how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament versus how the Holy Spirit operates in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the spirit lives within each one of us. In the Old Testament, the spirit is said to have come upon somebody so that they would be empowered 
empowered for a specific task that was given them. The Spirit in the Old Testament is also said to have departed from people. And so we saw last week in Samson that the Spirit had departed from Samson, but he didn't know it. You remember back in Saul also that the Spirit departed from Saul and a troubling spirit came upon him. That leads some people to wonder, can I lose my salvation? But it's a different dispensation. It's a different time. And so in the Old Testament, when you see the Holy Spirit acting in a different way to come upon or to depart, and you see him giving special gifts for special areas of service, it's different in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit lives within each one of us if we're a believer, and the Holy Spirit gives each one of us gifts that we can use for the upbuilding of other people. And so here it says the spirit came upon him. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and he passed to Mitzpah of Gilead and from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites and here comes the problem in the passage. Why is Jephthah listed in the hallway of faith and the heroes of the faith? I think it's because he was a rejected person who stepped up and who trusted God and believed God would give him the victory. Here, what we see in this particular section though is a vow that he made that was a rash, foolish vow. Jephthah, didn't have to make this vow. Sometimes silence really is gold. The Spirit of the Lord was already upon Jephthah. In chapter 10, we've already looked at it. The Lord was growing tired. But here's what he vowed in verse 30 when Jephthah made a vow. It says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That word and is important. One argument's gonna say the word and can be translated as or, and that's how it makes its argument, but in all of the standard translations, it's translated as the word and. And so notice the word and there. It says, I will return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So verse 32, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites. He fought against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Again, the battle is minimized because the battle is the Lord's. It's not about the strategy. It's not about the fighting. The Lord gave the battle, and it says he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become a cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, Father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down the mountain and weep for my virginity. Notice what she's weeping for there too because it comes into the argument. Weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months. She departed. She and her companions came back. And what does it say there? Wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became the custom of Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Jephthah acknowledged God perhaps more than any other judge. You see some of the verses listed up here. 9, 11, 21, 23, 24, 27, 30, 31, 35. You see in Samson, Samson only prayed to God twice in his entire story. But yet what we remember Jephthah for, it's not his acknowledgement of God, it's his tragic vow that he made. There's two views on this particular passage. In those two views, one says that he sacrificed his daughter. 
The next view says that he consecrated his daughter to temple service. I want to go through quickly and briefly some of the arguments for each of those views, because when we teach a passage, I like to get into some of the details, and this is in the weeds. This is not the main area of the passage, but I think you need to know it as we walk through it, and so let's wrestle with it for just a moment. The one view says he sacrificed his daughter. That view has several things supporting it. The first is that it is the clearest reading of verse 31. Every translation translates verse 31 with and and not with or, and so it is the clearest reading of verse 31. He was beyond the Jordan and far from the tabernacle. So some will say he's not sending his daughter to the tabernacle. That was a long way away. His characterization as attracting worthless fellows indicates he may have been a hypocrite in religious devotion. He named Chemosh instead of Melech, which meant he could have mixed up who held what. And he wanted victory really badly. Victory was the only way he was going to be the leader, so his entire future was riding on it. And so some people that we would trust and that we would look to to say are good scholars would support the view that he sacrificed his daughter. One of those, the name you would know, would be John MacArthur. In his study Bible, he walks through different arguments for why he believes he sacrificed his daughter. There are other very good scholars, very conservative people who believe he did not sacrifice his daughter, but that he consecrated his daughter to temple service. Why is that? Well, one is because human sacrifices and rash oaths were sin. Leviticus 5, 3 through 6 says, and any rash oath to do evil or to do good, and it goes on, that you can have compensation for the sin that has been committed with a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. So the Bible tells us that he could have, because of this rash oath, put together a sin offering and not had to slay his daughter. So why would he kill his only daughter, his one daughter, if that's the case? There are also commandments that say you cannot do child sacrifice. Leviticus 18, 21, Leviticus 21 through 5, Deuteronomy 12, 31, Deuteronomy 18, 10, all forbid child sacrifice. The word and in verse 31 can be translated or. That would mean that he was going to dedicate whatever came out of the door or he was going to sacrifice it. And in that day and time, you had certain chambers in a house where animals were. So if an animal were the first thing to come out, you burn it, you sacrifice it. If it's a person, you dedicate it to the service of the Lord. Some argue that that's what he meant. It's a difficult case to make on that particular point, but that's what some argue. The text does, though, focus on virginity. It never says in the text that Jephthah killed his daughter. Instead, it says that she wept for her virginity and not her life on the mountain in verse 38. In verse 39, it says she had never known a man. doesn't talk about her death. And then it talks about the daughters of Israel lament in the ESV or the New King James. But it also says commemorate in the New American Standard, the Holman Christian Standard, or the NIV. Now, why would those three translations at the latter use the word commemorate? Because you're not going to commemorate a tragic vow where a person kills his only daughter. And so perhaps there's an inclination there that that word, if it's translated commemorate, means that he just dedicated her to temple service. And the last one, Jephthah is mentioned as a man of faith in 1 Samuel 12, 11, and also in Hebrews eleven thirty two. I have a daughter. I can't, in my own human experience, which is not the way we argue, but I'm just speaking to you personally, fathom killing my only daughter. I'll be honest with you. I just wouldn't have done it. It was sinned against the Lord. He could have killed me. That'd been fine. I just wouldn't have done it. So my own personal experience here and how much I love my only daughter plays into the fact that I hold the second position. Does it really matter whether you hold the first or the second? No, it doesn't. But as I look at this text and I read it through the lens of a father of a daughter, I have to look at this text and say 
The text is focused on the virginity and not the death. It's focused on the virginity over again and not the death. She had never known a man. And so over and over I see that. I think what he did here is he dedicated her to temple service. You say, okay, well then why did he tear his clothes? This was his only daughter. This was his lineage. This meant that his lineage stopped with him. He was going to have no offspring. And in the Old Testament times, that was a pretty big deal that you were to have offspring. So take your pick, roll your dice, whatever you want to do. Take your position and then roll with it. But at least now you know the arguments on both sides. All right, now let's bring this back around to some application here. How do we apply this text to our lives? Here's some application points I have for you. Number one, God can use anyone from the right or wrong side of the tracks. So if you're in here and you're on the right side of the tracks, God can use you and he wants to use you to do something great. If you're in here and you're from the wrong side of the tracks, God wants to use you to do something great. Not for your glory, but for his. God can use anyone from the right or wrong sides of the track. Jephthah did something. Are you ready and willing to lead? Here's my fear. Here's what I don't want is for some people just to come through, go through four years, get out into the world, have an opportunity to make a difference and to sit back and do nothing. How tragic. Not to use your life for good and to use your life for the gospel and to use your life for the kingdom, just to sit back and do nothing. Jephthah got involved. There's much wisdom in Jephthah's response. He sought peace before violence. He went directly to the source. He asked a question to understand the problem, and he responded with clear logic. We can all learn from that when dealing with confrontation, no matter what the confrontation is. How do we handle confrontation? You step up, and you be a man or you be a woman, and you don't talk about people. You don't go around people's back. You go to the issue. When you go to the issue, you ask a question to make sure you understand the issue rather than assuming you already know all the facts. After you understand the issue, you see peace in that process as well, and then you respond with good, clear logic. That's a good understanding of how to handle confrontation in any situation. It's clear right here in the Bible. It's exactly what he did. Number four, Jephthah should not have made a vow. He added something not needed. You think about the Pharisees. You think about throughout church history where we added penance and where we added indulgences. You have to go and do this and say this, and you have to give money so that other people can have their souls liberated from purgatory. It was the great line that when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs that Tetzel quoted when he went around trying to raise money because people have always had a desire to add something that we do to the gospel grace. We want to do something because if we do something, it means God will accept us based on what we've done for him. But the truth of the matter is God is never going to accept us based on what we've done for him. God is only going to accept us based on what Christ has already done for us. And that's the temptation that we all have even today. I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to do something that will make God accept me. And the truth of the matter is you cannot do something to make God accept you. Church membership, how much you give, how much time you spend loving on the poor, how many mission trips you go on, Those things are great, but you cannot do something to make God accept you. Even our best works are filthy rags. It's only by the grace of God. And then he can use us to produce fruit that demonstrates who we belong to. Jephthah was a man of faith in a book of fallen judges, living in a corrupt culture, and all that points to the need for a perfect Savior. We look at Jephthah and we say, really? This is a hero of the faith? Yeah. 
Because the faith that he's testifying to is not his own. It's the faith of God. And over and over in Hebrews chapter 11, we see different people who stand up and they say, God is faithful, you can trust him. God is faithful, you can trust him. And if you get nothing else out of this year's worth of chapels, I want you to get God is faithful, you can trust him. In the hardest times of life, God is faithful, you can trust him. When it's negative 18 degrees outside, God is faithful, you can trust him. When midterms are on the horizon, God is faithful, you can trust him. When graduation looms and no job opportunities are there at the present, God is faithful, you can trust him. When that person you thought you were gonna spend the rest of your life with says, no, it's off, God is faithful, you can trust him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are faithful and that we can trust you. God, help us to live by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.